in a world where most people watch movies and then forget about them. These brave heroes join forces to watch them again and then talk about them. Join them in their epic journey as they go back in time, a decade and beyond, to revisit and break down films from a vast array of genres. Do these movies hold up over time? Are they classics? Find out on Retro Movie Roundtable. Starring your hosts, Brian Fry, Chad Robinson, Dustin Melbarnes, Lizzie Haynes, and Russell Guest. Coming now to Headphones in Your Ears. Welcome all you lords, ladies, and knights of the Retro Movie Roundtable, where we watch movies, then talk about them. I'm your host, Dustin Melbardis, and joining me today is my good friend and co-host, Lizzie Haynes. Lizzie, how's the new year treating you? Dustin, new year, same me. Yes. But, <laughs> but I am excited for 2023 and what it has in store. I'm, I'm looking forward to it. I haven't talked to you since before Christmas. Can you tell me... In your household, was there one gift exchanged that just really lit up the room for everybody? It might have been something you gave or something you received? Yes. So my husband and I decided to just pour all of the big ticket items for our kids. And so we said, this year, let's just go really sentimental. And so we decided to go as cheesy as humanly possible with each other. He made me this beautiful photo album of like, all these pictures from us from when we started dating Cute. up until now with like little captions. And then I made him – fun little fact about us. We save all of our cards like for anniversaries and birthdays and whatnot. And so I made a little compilation of our cards. Extra cheese. But I got to say we both loved it. There were some happy tears going on in the house oh, on Christmas Day. It was great. To be in love. I remember what that felt like <laughs> once. <laughs> well, the bigger the cheese, the better the marriage. <laughs> well, that hey, what a lesson for all of our listeners. I love it. That's right. Uh, I feel like well, that would make mine. a great tattoo. <laughs> <laughs> Who is that? We'll get to the. It we'll would. get to her in a minute. I got a Ninja Air Fryer ten and one. My new favorite thing. Hey. Yeah. That's amazing. Got it, got, that is amazing. Got it from my no, company. Air, air fryer is a game changer. Yeah. Well, you might have heard that voice. We've got a returning guest. Uh, listeners may remember her voice from last year's installment of The Big Boat Boys with Dustin and Nathan, where we featured Deep Rising. Coming to you from Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania, it's J.D. Donnelly. Hello. Hello, everyone. Did you want to say something about a Christmas gift you got, maybe from the Nate man? Uh, Nathan was kind enough to get me the art book for Avatar Way of Water. And he actually ordered it before the movie even came out. So he oh. knows me very well. Just give me the creature stuff. So much creature design. It's I'm just glad to be back on Pandora, man. I guess you were so excited about the art book because you're, you're an artist and convention goer. Uh, tell the people where they can find out more about your efforts or maybe the next convention you're scoping out. So my next scheduled convention is actually an anime convention, KatsuCon, down in the National Harbor, D.C. Come February 16th to 18th, I believe. Cool. Right off the top of my head, but it's um, but yeah, I the artist behind painting dragon feathers, and I specialize in all kinds of creature art, whether it be dioramas, fossil replicas, watercolor illustration, tattoo design. Give me your creepy, cutie, cuddly creatures of all kinds, real, mythical, and extinct. I feel like that wasn't your motto, but now it should be. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> Give me your like scaly, that. your furry, your feathered masses. <laughs> That's good. That's good. Well, you know, today's movie is an animated movie. Uh, so, JD, what movie is your favorite for the look and style? 
I am a big fan of the highly detailed animated movie was Jorge Gutierrez. He did The Book of Life, which was a animated film about the Mexican Day of the Dead. Just the level of detail, especially when you know there's a human hand having to draw or in the case of like a 3D rendered movie, which by the way, I have no prep bias either way. I I have the nostalgia for hand-drawn movies because I was a kid of the 90s and grew up on, you know, movies older than that. Right. But I remember the birth. I was there, Gandalf. How about you, Lizzie? What's your favorite animated movie for the look and style? I really love, I, I'm kind of a Disney purist. So to me, I really love just the Beauty and the Beast hand-drawn style of animation. To me, a lot like JD was saying, that's really what I grew up on. So there's a sense of nostalgia for me with those types of movies, but then also this almost kind of intimate relationship from animator to viewer because you know that just so much detail and time went into having to draw those characters. And yeah, there's just nothing like it. Yeah, there's a love and heart that goes into that work that is being done by human being. I think that's pretty neat. Yes. For me, I, I, re- I was trying to come up with several answers like this, and I, I realized that in my head, the first thing that came to mind was actually stop motion animation. Uh, so Nightmare Before Christmas is awesome for me. I remember learning about that with Wallace and Gromit back in the 90s. I'm not the biggest Wallace and Gromit fan, but I appreciate it because of the work. So Nightmare Before Christmas with that style kind of is, is number one for me. I think I have a lot of uh, feelers into other styles, but that I couldn't shake that when I was thinking about this movie. JD, what's the last movie you saw? The last movie I saw was the second viewing of Avatar Way of Water. The second viewing. Um, nice. Which, granted, that was also a movie so highly detailed. And honestly, you can claim there's a lot of animation in it because of all the CGI effects for the creatures and the people. It's like almost like an eye spy. Like It's like, oh, I noticed this, this on this viewing and this on that viewing. Oh, I forgot about that part. Oh, I made this connection on this part because now this part makes sense. Well, without saying too much, because I know Lizzie hasn't seen it yet, maybe the most appropriate thing to say about how things are animated is that when they say this movie is the way of water, they aren't kidding. And uh, there's a there's a lot about the ocean, right? We move away from the jungles to the coast, and boy, is it breathtaking. I am afraid of the ocean. Is there... Can you... Well, I don't know. You might not be able to spoil it. But just as a disclaimer, I'm very afraid of the ocean. So now I go in, I'm going in with a little anxious and then I start. This installment is very shallow water coral reef friendly. Okay. James wow. Cameron's one of the few people that has gone down into the Marianas Trench and supposedly they incorporated some footage Uh-oh. that he filmed down there into the movie. <laughs> oh, that's cool. Which I was like, yes, deep sea Pandora, give me the deep sea ecosystems. I feel like when we get to that part though, that's where Lizzie, you might want to go and get some popcorn. Yeah. That, that part is what scares me. Like, for context, I, my heart completely stopped in Jurassic World when, like, that, the, the sea dinosaur comes up. Like, I think I literally just, like, <laughs> I just, like, heart and butt. Like, I just, like, couldn't. It was just so awful. If it's any reassurance, the one in the Jurassic World movie is extremely large. Like, much, much larger than what any, even the largest specimen ever found would have existed. Like, three times the size. They would have been smaller than that no my worst fear open being like an open water that poor assistant like i'll just never get over it it was just so scary <laughs> i love that i love that what's the last movie you saw 
I so confession is that I have been cheating on movies with television. So I the last movie that I saw was a Christmas movie. And it was the night before that, uh, if you've all seen that, it's a funny Christmas movie. It's our Seth Rogen, Anthony Mackie, and Joseph Gordon-Lovett. It is where the premise of the movie is that the three of them have this tradition that they always spend Christmas together as a family, their own chosen family. And Seth Rogen is about to have a baby. And so this is going to be the very last time that they do that before they embark on their lives starting to change. And there's a lot of illegal drugs and a lot of just bad behavior, mm. kind of it, just as there would be in any Seth Rogen movie. Um, the course just like there would be when you get the guys back together, you know? Really, really funny. And that might be a new Christmas tradition for my husband and I t- on Christmas Eve to watch the night before together after doing all of the you know, the appropriate Santa things. I will tell you the last movie I saw was called Chapeau Lang from 2005, starring uh, Donnie Yen, Wu Jing, Sammo Hung, and Tony Jaa. I was just in the mood to watch a kung fu movie, uh, and Donnie Yen uses a blackjack as his primary weapon, like a baton, an extendable baton. And uh, he does some cool work with that, especially against uh, Wu Jing, who wields like a, uh, like a dueler's knife. Kind of neat for me, but it was just a, I was in, I needed an action fix, so I got it. You know, we've talked a little bit about anime. We've talked about creatures that are bigger than they should be. Lizzie, can you tell me what movie we're covering tonight? Yes, we are going to be talking about Nausicaa of the Valley of the Wind. Starring Sumi Shimamoto, Goro Naya, Yoji Matsuda, Yoshiko Sakakibara, and Iyamasa Kayumi. Starring many others in the English dub, but I, I was giving for the, the Japanese subtitles, released in 1984, budget of $758,000, translated from the 180 million yen, and then that's uh, $14.3 million domestically, and we're using some uh, overseas box office numbers there, so don't hold us to it. The number one movie that year was Beverly Hills Cop. Hey, I know of a podcast that covered that just last year. Real popular downloader, too. The IMDb rating for this movie is 8.0. Uh, Rotten Tomatoes, our critics' tomato meter is 89%, and our audience score is 87%. Now, this is also, I'm going to say, Studio Ghibli movie. Is that correct, JD? Uh, Yeah, that's more or less. <laughs> and that's, that's what happens is we have a, a, an entire culture being introduced to this probably later than the Japanese fans would have been introduced to it. But I think that's something that attracts viewers and it, it attracts a higher score. People go into it wanting to really enjoy this Studio Ghibli stuff. JD, had you ever seen this movie before? I had, in not for a while though. Like, this was honestly not my first Studio Ghibli film. The first one I watched, I should say knowingly, because I did remember watching Kiki's Delivery Service, which is a very charming mm-hmm. Ghibli movie. It was aired on Disney, and I watched it like, oh, this is a great movie, without knowing what it was Studio Ghibli or even knowing what anime was. The first Ghibli movie I watched that was consciously aware that it was both an anime imported from Japan and Studio Ghibli, and specifically by Hayao Miyazaki, the one I did consciously watch was Spirited Away, which is one of the only ones, I think it got nominated for Best Picture of the Year got released in the U.S. It was like 2001. I remember mm-hmm. I got a VHS copy of it for Easter. I popped that bad boy in the v- VCR. <laughs> it did not leave the VCR for a week straight. Just constant, oh, wow. as soon as it was over, rewind and rewatch it. And then I was like, I, I, need to, I was like, I need to find more. 
after that when like along with like Castle in the Sky and Porco Rosso and most of his um work is, has been got dubbed by Disney in the um like early two early to mid two thousands. You know the way I, I listened to what you just said about how it 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 entered your life early. I feel like it's like a really easy lore and catch that the things you're seeing on the screen and the colors can really like it's not hard to catch the attention of of the kids introduced to it young as i say i mean like i was early teens mid-teens and i was gonna say laughing humans we're young we're we're attracted to um motion and the motion and the color red (laughs) so like as like i'm talking like an instinctual primal Mm -hmm. lizard brain level so yeah you had quite the experience how about you lizzie had you seen this before no i had never seen this movie before and confession is that this was the very first anime movie that i have ever seen in my life i have never seen an anime movie this is a good one to cut your teeth on but i will say this is this is like the start of miyazaki this is like his first full-length movie that was his own original idea and not because his first movie was technically a lupon the third movie and you get to see like i'll talk about some miyazaki quirks and tropes later but like this is not him at the height of his power (laughs) so to speak i had never i mean i my brother was really into dragon ball z and sailor moon and things like that so i mean i'm familiar with what anime is it's just i never really considered myself an odd its target audience there's anime is just kind of like a style of artwork so there's different genres there's thrillers mysteries sci-fi action adventure and it will say like dragon ball z and sailor moon a they're both episodic tv series b they are very very tropey in the action adventure like for girls sailor moon would be shoujo shoujo means girl so like sailor moon was like the quintessential shoujo action series while Dragon Ball Z is the quintessential shonen, shonen meaning boy action series. My husband, on the other hand, uh, is he, he's a pretty big anime fan. So when I told him that I had to watch this movie, he's like, "Do you want to watch an anime movie with me tonight?" He's like, hundred <laughs> percent, yes." And then we're sitting on the couch together, and as the opening credits start, he looks right over at me and he's like, "I can't believe this! Like, I can't believe you're watching this movie with me." I had no idea what to expect. I'm going to be completely blunt and completely honest because I'd never seen anything like this before. My expectations were really low and I really liked it. I thought it was a great story. I think the character development was really compelling. I loved, you can definitely tell it's a movie of the 80s because there's, there's just like amazing boppy music that kind of tells you how you're supposed to feel in each moment of the movie and I love Nausicaa as a character you know she's just this sweet princess that has power and is you know she's she's powerful and strong but yet hey doesn't we got a whole podcast to do this with Lizzie okay you're right I'm sorry I'm rambling I just really liked it (laughs) no that's actually good and I'm I'm gonna keep it in because you you kind of want to talk about this movie. You, you, it's, yeah. it's part of the experience is that it's now that you've seen it, you, you are part of it. I'm on the same level with Lizzie here. I'd never seen it before. And I was lucky to have several friends who are anime fans, both of the things that Lizzie was beginning to describe, the 
heroic, trope-filled, early stuff introduced by American producers who said, I think this is something that our kids would like, the Dragon Balls and Sailor Moons of the world. And then we, they also knew the historic stuff, the important stuff, the Lupin the Third, the, the things from manga, that kind of thing. And I thought it was really neat to have the chance to ask them when you provided the shortlist, JD, hey, y'all, which, which one should we start with? And it started a spirited debate of like, oh, hey, the, which one should you start with? Uh, but this one came out on top and we ended up agreeing that we'll, we'll start with Nausicaa. It's hard for me to answer questions like if it holds up or not, because I really do think it's lessons. I think we'll get into that after the break. It's lessons are sort of uh, throughout history, positive ones. And, and I think of like the style of the time, like it's it just, it's almost as if it was made to hold up through history. Uh, and that's a, a positive thing. You know, there are some things we cover here that very clearly don't, but this this movie uh, I feel like was appropriate to watch for uh, any time and for any age. I, I don't feel like there was anything in this movie that was like too directed towards children or too directed towards like only adults will get that theme. So I, I thought it was wonderful and I definitely enjoyed it while watching. Uh, part, uh, I would say part of that definitely is a cultural thing because in not to say that American children's media talks down to its audiences, but also, like, the age of maturation in Japan's a bit older, or a bit younger. So, like, they treat their kids more maturely at a younger age. So uh-uh. they don't so they don't necessarily balk at tackling hard, tough discussions. I will also say, too, typically for Miyazaki, I think the only movie of his that has above a PG rating is Princess Mononoke, which is rated PG-13. Okay. Well, you know... The, there's an example that I'll want to bring up after the break, but you know there, there are certain things that I think they really could have leaned into if you were to approach it from like child audience based, like things that you could merchandise or market. Uh, I think they really could have leaned in that direction, and I see this more as art than I see it as a production for profit, which is another thing that I think kind of keeps it in this little microcosm of a, a just a pleasant watch as opposed to the start of some big franchise. And now, we know that the studio is successful, but maybe that's part of what makes the studio successful, is that the things it makes are, I think, artistic first. Would you agree? Uh, yeah, and I will I will say, now that you mentioned, it, Ghibli has become much more of a recognizable name, and they, are, they actually just made a Ghibli theme park over in Japan. I think it opened last year. And it's starting to get on the merchandise side. Like, you, if you go to Barnes & Noble or Hot Topic, you can walk in and see merchandise. But that's because more, uh-huh. it's been introduced to the West. And right. Kids right. want kids want little plushies of fox squirrels. And once upon a time, I did have a plushie of Tato the fox squirrel, <laughs> and I think I might have purged it when I moved, unfortunately. Oh. Well, I understand that. I understand that sort of global push towards how do we how do we turn this into something more... Yeah. Well, speaking of storytelling, we actually are going to go over the plot of this movie when we get back from our advertisement break. So stay tuned. Uh, Go check out Nausicaa of the Valley of the Wind and come back because if you don't watch it by the time you come back, Lizzie's going to spoil stuff for you. We'll see you after the break. Welcome to the All 80s Movies Podcast. I'm Bill. And I'm Jason, and this is the podcast where we talk about the blockbusters, the flops, and everything in between from one of the freshest decades for movies, the 1980s. 
So whether you're a brain, a jock, a valley girl, or a Jedi, we've got some 80s classics for you. Do these movies stand the test of time? Are we discovering something new? Is there an 80s movie we're finally watching for the first time? Join us each week as we dive into the cinematic nostalgia that inspired and influenced a generation. From the hits to the cult classics, we'll discuss our earliest memories, favorite scenes, fun facts, and our not-so-favorite movie moments, too. It's the All 80s Movies Podcast, now available on all major streaming platforms. Please subscribe and happy listening. All right, and we are back. This is your final warning. We are about to spoil the plot of Nausicaa of the Valley of the Wind. Lizzie, take it away. All right, guys, buckle up. Our movie opens with a brief history of the world that a thousand years prior, giant warriors destroyed civilization, leaving behind waste, which resulted in the majority of the world as a toxic jungle overrun with huge, deadly insects called alms. Nausicaa, a young and extraordinarily kind princess who lives in the Valley of the Wind, a small valley surrounded by neighboring kingdoms that are at war with one another, Nausicaa enjoys roaming around the jungle with protective gear, trying to find any remnants of civilization. There she happens upon a fellow voyager being chased by an elm. The elm is chasing the voyager with red eyes blinded by rage. Nausicaa, using an insect charm, is able to calm the elm down and reason with it to not cause harm. The Voyager reveals himself to be Lord Yupa, a good friend who also lives in the Valley of the Wind. Together they go back to the valley where Lord Yupa and Nausicaa's father, along with a wise oracle, Opapa, discuss Lord Yupa's travels to the neighboring kingdoms. Then Yupa shares that the kingdoms around him are suffering. The toxins are spreading and both kingdoms are behaving like savages. Opapa shares that she knows how this will all end and prays soon for the ancient fulfillment of fulfillment of a prophecy in which a man in blue will emerge from fields of gold and will save the world. That night, an unknown ship flies over the valley and the townspeople panic. Nausicaa boards her glider to try to warn the ship that it must land before it will crash. She recognizes the ship as a Telmachian ship. She recognizes a Pegite passenger named Lestel. The ship crashes and engulfs in flames. The young girl warns Nausicaa to burn the ship and everything in it as the ship holds deadly insects that will leave behind toxic spores. Lord Yupa discovers on board an embryo of a giant warrior, one that will return and, if released, will wreak havoc on the world and make it an even worse apocalyptic state. Lord Yupa worries for the valley and the rest of the world should this warrior be released. Shortly after, Tolmekian troops arrive in the valley led by a warrior princess, Kushana, and they occupy the valley, execute Nausicaa's father, and take back the embryo that they had in their possession before the ship crashed. Kushana reveals her plan to release the warrior and allow him to burn the toxic jungle, thinking that this act of violence will allow for a new world. Nausicaa runs to find solace in her room where Lord Yupa finds her, surrounded by lush spores and plants from the toxic jungle. At first, he panics, but then he realizes that the air is clean. Nausicaa reveals that with clean soil, the plants are safe, leading her to question everything she knows to be true about the toxic jungle and the insects that guard it. Nausicaa is taken prisoner by Kushana along with five hostages while they board her ship. On board, they are attacked by a pegite ship and shoots down and crashes into the jungle. In doing so, it awakes several insects. Nausicaa runs off to look for the pegite pilot, where she instructs the hostages to return home if she doesn't come back. Nausicaa finds the pilot and learns that he is Abel, Lestel's brother. 
Quickly, the two of them are engulfed into quicksand, which takes them beneath the jungle. There she discovers that the air is also clean. It's clean by a process in which the plants are purifying the topsoil and producing clean water and soil below the surface. She then has the realization that the insects are not hostile in the sense that they want to destroy mankind, but rather they want to protect the land from being further destroyed by mankind. Nausicaa and Abel, now with this new information, run to return to Pegite, but before they can, they are met by a band of Pegites who plan to lure the insects into the valley where the Tolmecians continue to occupy and destroy the entire valley and all who reside, Tolmecians and valley villagers. Nausicaa escapes their grasp with the help of Lestelle and Abel's mother, who recognizes that this is not the way for peace. Nausicaa sees that they're using a baby ohm as bait to lure the pack of alms into the valley. Meanwhile, back in the valley, Kushana releases the great warrior, hoping that her plan of incinerating the world will come to fruition. However, the warrior is not fully developed and collapses. Nasika manages to calm the baby ohm down, but not before being run over by the pack. The townspeople of the valley are saved, but devastated that their princess has fallen. Suddenly, the alms rage end, and they revive Nasika using their golden tentacles. Nausicaa's dress, once red, now blue, after being drenched in own blood, emerges through fields of gold, fulfilling the ancient prophecy and saving the world. And saving the world. And then in our credit scene, we get a nice little montage of what happens to the world after. Which I think, when speaking with some of the other hosts of this show, frequently we want more. But... Based on that plot summary, we got a lot in this movie, and I was happy to have just a little montage at the end. Oh, look, look how happy they are. Oh, he's, he's writing with him. That's great. So what is it about this movie that lingers in your mind longer? The story, that the adventure that Nazca goes on, or the lesson, the, uh, the, the underwriting lesson of everything? I think for me, it was the lesson. I think that... Nausicaa practices this great philosophy that I'm going to say it was given before. I know it wasn't, but I saw this movie first. So in my mind, it comes first. And I ta- I've been talking to this about my son a lot because we're talking about responsibility. And um, in the words of the great wise Uncle Ben, with great power comes great responsibility. And I feel like Nausicaa perfectly emulates that in the sense that she has strength and she knows how to to wield that strength but she's gentle and she's kind and when she does have moments where she loses her temper there's guilt and she recognizes that it's wrong and i just i think she's a really wonderful princess she's flawed in the sense that we all are but um but she's gracious and i just i think she's a really wonderful representation of a princess I did write in my notes when I was watching this that Nausicaa, her greatest weapon is love. And she I think so too. Yeah. I don't mean it like uh, for me, I would say it is also the lesson. It's definitely the environmental lesson because that's also an ongoing trope that Miyazaki or theme Miyazaki explores in multiple of his films including Princess Mononoke and even to a degree just um cohabitation 
So in both this movie and Princess Mononoke, it's cohabitation between man and industrialization and nature. And but whereas like Spirit Away, it's cohabitation between the spirit world and the human and like humans and the mortal realm, Porco Rosso, the different sides of World War One, all that kind of stuff. And also too, because my specialty is creatures and monsters, there's the great watching this now that I'm older and have some years of creature study under my belt something that definitely stuck with me i realized upon this viewing a great big old analogy is the giant warriors because they're a big analogy for the destructiveness of say the atomic bomb which the japanese country obviously suffered so i what i give a creature crea- creation panel at panel at conventions sometimes where i talk about creature design and a quote i borrow to talk about from a another convention speaker named Charles Dunbar who gives amazing lectures on Japanese culture history and stuff like that is if you want to understand what a culture fears look at its monsters so this movie they uh, they literally took the devastating effects of nuclear war and made it a literal monster giant insects are not hostile in like uh oh humans are protein snacks like at a base level yeah they're they're it's- not they're not hunting humans no, they have a kind of a sentience. Like it's, they're more or less have turned into Earth's um, immune system, and humans are the virus. Dun dun dun. <laughs> you you know, a great way of putting it. There's something there. I, I, I had written down, and this is a, a, a tremendous bounce even for me to jump to the very end of our superlatives. But I wrote three quotes that I wanted to bring up later. But I'm going to bring up two of them now, based on what you two ladies just said. First of all, when I brought up lessons, I was actually thinking of the more environmentalism and anti-war lessons. And Lizzie, you jumped right right into love and responsibility, which I think is, well, indicative of being a super mom. But two, it's just another great way to look at this uh, Eastern portrayal of princess, which I think we'll get into a bit. But the, the talking of love as the lesson, the trailer for this movie, which also features a bop. The tagline of it is, A young girl's love called forth miracles. I, I didn't know that from the, the watching the movie. I saw it in the trailer afterwards. Um, and then with JD, what you were mentioning is, uh, look at to what a culture fears in its monsters. There's uh, toward the end of the movie where we have Obaba say, there's no reason to live if our lives depend on a monster. And boy, does that not encapsulate what you were mentioning about this incredibly destructive force, these great warriors. Is that is that right? Is that what they were called? First off, just address the ohm in the room. I listened to the Disney dub. I have not actually watched the original Japanese sub- audio with subtitles. They're called giant warriors in the Japanese subtitle movie because that's what I watched. Yeah, in the English dub, they also call them the giant warriors. I will say, too, something about the insects is you want to understand what culture fears, look at its monsters. And they could have gone with all kinds of creature design for what kind of entities would have um, arisen, evolved to from this toxic jungle. And I feel they went with insects because insects, if you look at the animal kingdom are the most scuttly and alien. They're the most unlike. Like, there's some empathy towards mammals. There's empathy towards uh-huh. reptiles. Because, hey, they have four legs. They move around. Um, like, obviously, the, she gets a sidekick of a fox squirrel to highly sympathetic 
animals that people love, foxes and squirrels. But like, what if you want to go to the opposite end of the spectrum? If you want to skeeve people out, you go with bugs. Multiple legs, multiple eyes, hard carapaces. And you can see it in how the people react, even the people of the Valley of the Wind, basically everyone but Nausicaa. Nausicaa's one of the only people who sees the insects as part of the biome. They're just like, oh, they're just like living their lives. She has a bug charm so she can communicate with them to a degree without having to harm them. And she warns people, don't fire your guns, don't shoot them. You're just going to make them angry. You're going to trigger the hive swarm antibody response. But everyone else is terrified of them because they're like, oh, the insects, you know, they attack, they eat us. Uh, spoiler alert, you find out Kushana is missing some limbs from insect attacks. It's a straight up one to one. As as a world, we need our bugs. We, we need them. And what does the Earth have as response? The so so in my version it was called the Sea of Decay, which is with all of these spores and this place where it's toxic for people to breathe. What's it called in the dubbed version? Is it something uh, the similar? Toxic jungle. The toxic, yeah, toxic jungle. jungle. Okay, so I have a feeling that there's going to be some things that aren't quite one to one here. But yeah, that the Sea of Decay is what it's called in the Japanese uh, audio. And I like the Sea of Decay. I like that. That sounds. I mean, you know, I'm afraid of the ocean. From <laughs> Twenty minutes ago, but yeah, it is. There's something about the ocean, like even in the Bible, when talking about the the sea and the waters, they're referring to chaos. Mm-hmm. Um, so it's there's something just very chaotic about open water, and uh, so I like I like sea of decay. the sea of decay. That's where the the, the insects are protecting. The, so the, this sea of decay and the insects are protecting this world. They're protecting the earth. What do we learn through the plot of this movie? Is that this is a to me, this is a natural response to the terrors that humanity has inflicted on the earth. And we're in a position, let's like take it in the far swing from Fern Gully here. We're in the position where the forest is won. The earth is winning. The sea of decay swallows up kingdoms by the year. And what do we learn throughout? What's underneath the sea of decay? The wonderful, pure place where... Things are breathable and safe and sterile in the most natural way, again, because if you leave humans to their own devices, we're going to destroy things. And we did. And so we're this far into, hey, listen, the, the only people worth saving in this movie, I actually mentioned, uh, I wrote this down in my notes. There's no good guys outside of the Valley of the Wind, are there? As, as a civilization wise. In the Japanese dub, his name is it is written as Absol. I'm going to call him Abel because it's easier. Abel is maybe the only character outside of the Valley of the Wind villagers who I think has any really redeeming qualities. Everybody else is just like, well, we're part of the war effort. Like we're, we're doing what we can to fight back and destroy even more. And they bring that destruction to the Valley of the Wind. Most of what we get aside from, and you mentioned that the Valley villagers aren't really like we love nature either that anytime they see a spore they go out with their flamethrowers and destroy it at least they've got their little paradise but yeah the, the most of outside of the valley of the wind is no we're, we're going to beat the earth at its own game <laughs> spoiler alert that never wins they, i know in the english dub at least in in a scene near the end obaba which by the way they named the old lady care old the old lady character's name is old lady old lady <laughs> old lady <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> <laughs> That's great. 
But anyway, Obaba says we've learned. Maybe it's not Obaba. It's one of the it's one of the elders of the village at least that says we learn to use fire in small amounts. So it's definitely more about coexisting. It's not about complete decimation right. like what they want to use with the warriors. Yeah, Pedjite and Tomikia, they're kind of Game of Thronesing it in the remnants <laughs> of the Mad Max-esque world with more bugs. But um, I would say they're not inherently evil. They're just, they're scared. And scared people do stupid stuff, including wage war. And they, Kushan in particular, like, she does have an, a sympathetic motive. She was horribly maimed by these insects so she understands that it's hostile it's not described as inherently evil it's just a hostile environment i'm gonna swing i'm gonna swing hard the other way with this whole all right that these kingdoms aren't inherently evil let's let's take a look at real world 2023 we know that we are on a countdown to destruction in our world and that we have floating islands of plastic garbage in our oceans. And we know that there are dangers to the way that we have lived, like, like have formed our cultures in the way that they destroy environments. Mm-hmm. Now, maybe this is where I detach from the, well, that's not inherently evil. Because look at all the people we can feed or look at all the things that we've done for industry. But it's pretty close that we are fighting and trying to, we're almost trying our best to destroy the earth. And I don't know how close to the line of inherently evil that is. But there's a reason why we've had to like step back and why in the 80s, what was it? Chlorofluorocarbons like, hey, in our aerosol, we can't use this anymore. And why we, we make the steps to be like, all right, hey, we, uh, we, we can't keep hurting the earth that bad. We can keep hurting the earth some ways, but not that bad. Now, I'm not trying to get too political here, but the idea is I think in the world of Nausicaa of the Valley of the Wind, where we're a thousand years past the seven days fire. Whatever the that seven was. days of fire. Which, on, that, which when it comes to apocalyptic think, names, that's actually pretty badass. Pretty <laughs> awesome. <laughs> We already did this. We already, and and I think that this is a great, um, like, stepping stone towards some of the other post-apocalyptic worlds that we saw maybe 15 years later, is we we already did these things and we're living in the aftermath. The toxic jungle, as as you guys have it in your version, and the sea of decay is the tide coming back, is it's the earth fighting back. And there's a part of, there's a part of me watching this movie saying like, Man, the kingdoms of man deserve it. We've deserved this encroachment. But what does the earth do to forgive? Underneath the toxic jungle, the world is safe under there. And there's a bunch of guardian bugs in the way. But it does make me think a lot about what the future of the world of Nausicaa of the Valley of the Wind could be. Which is, well, I don't know, is there some type of natural symbiosis between the ohm, the other insects, and the world? Or is there eventually some great migration to the safe places beneath the Sea of Decay? I don't know. These are questions I was left with, but I do like the thought experiment. I 
think the overall, like, because I honestly had that thought too at the end was like, okay, Nausicaa solved this problem, but what's the long, what's the long game for humanity? Sure, yeah. And I think the point they were trying, that was implied was that because she definitely had an, had a, made an imprint on Kushana, the most, the warlike princess, because she was right. like literally right, yes. jaws, like jaw agape, starstruck when she saw Nausicaa handling the insects peacefully, like to the point that she was able, like that the one guy was able to come up and just completely disarm her, just like take the gun, like, hey, I'm going to take this gun away from you now. And she didn't even fight it. She was just <laughs> That's right. Oh, yeah. When they're in the sort of lake area. Yeah. After after the, the gunship and the other ship were just sort of floating on the water. Yeah. And then yeah. near the end of the movie, um, when Kushana is and her Tomikian forces are fighting against the the wind valiers that are hiding out in the old submarine on the mm-hmm. in the English dub it was the sea of the the acid lake. Um, the acid lake is is same here. Okay, yeah. and they she's like, no, we're gonna wait for not. They're like her second in command, the Weasley dude's like, why why don't we just attack them? And she's like, no, I want to wait for see if Nausicaa's gonna show up, see if she actually accomplishes what she says she's going to. And I don't know if it's in your version, but in the English dub she says a line at some point where she's like. If Nausicaa ma- manages to get out of the jungle and come back, she's like, I'd like to get to know her. If she manages to survive all this crazy insect yes. drama. So I think the idea is that Nausicaa's ways of empathy and love rub off on the Pegites and the Thumikians. Yeah. And they might learn to become more cohabitating in a more gentle way, with a more symbiotic way, like the Wind Valiers. Even just how they're presented with how each culture interacts with the natural world around them. But Lizzie, what are some other things about about Nausicaa herself that are inspiring, entertaining, maybe for the kids? Like like a, a shining example, there's a gentle style to the way that she flies and the way that she even speaks. I think she just really leads with love, which I think in terms of thinking about how things are going to be for the rest of the of the world, I think that when she's going to hopefully leave behind this legacy of like when you get your mind right, things just kind of naturally fall into place. So I think she really emulates that so well. She has such patience. She has like all of the like amazing fruits of the spirit and the fact that like when that little fox squirrel like lands on her like right in the very beginning and like getting gets ready to bite her. This was like probably one of my favorite scenes in the movie where she just is like, I'm not going to hurt you. And the fox even bites her. Mm -hmm. And even in that moment, she still maintains her cool and her calm. And I loved that scene because to me, that was so foreshadowing of just her character. She always has a plan. Like anytime that things go awry, you know, she's cool under pressure too. Like she's so cool. And yes, she's like, okay, like hostages, you go here. I'm going to go here. And she just has this very, like, it doesn't matter where you come from. I'm not going to leave you behind mentality. Like, you know, when the ship crashes, she probably had every opportunity to just completely ditch the print, the Kushana. And also same with the Pegite pilot that with Abel, Abel ran, yeah. ran them down. You know, she didn't know at the time that Abel was Listel's brother and was good, but it didn't stop her from snatching from, him from the pincers of that flying centipede. Yes, and I just I think she emulates this like amazing life philosophy of who they are won't stop me from being who I am. You know, she just really like these people around her are acting like savages. You know, the Pedrites are supposed to be 
somewhat peaceful in comparison to the Tolmekians. So you hear Abel talking about how there's bloodthirsty Tolmekians and but in the end the Pagites end up being, you know, they're just as bad. And and so I think talking specifically about Nausicaa, I just really love that she all in all is a very rooted and grounded princess who always has her eye on the prize, which is making sure that no matter what she does, her actions are moving towards whatever is going to lead with love. You know, you get get the little sequence afterwards where it gives you a montage of what's going to happen afterwards, and you really get this sense that everybody's going to live happily ever after because they've kind of caught on that love is going to be what's most important. Speaking of happily ever after and princesses, How does this movie serve as a foil for how our Western animation studios have presented princesses? I think, well, I mean, we're finally starting to tiptoe away from the princesses that I grew up with. But to me, it was you are either fall into one of two categories. You're either a total damsel in distress or you are someone that is just looking for love rather than being somebody that leads with love. I think probably the best comparison we have to Nausicaa in the Western world would probably be Cinderella just because she, her superpower in in a sense is her kindness. But if you look at a different princess like Sleeping Beauty, you know, she's everywhere and, you know, when you think of a Disney princess, she's usually one of the first that come to mind. Her main goal, and same with Ariel and a lot of these princesses, is about finding, finding a love. Per- yeah. Yes, it's like I want to find love rather than understanding that that love can be something that you harness within yourself. And I think that that's a really lovely lesson that I think is important for all children, but especially for young girls. It's like a reactionary, your story is actually about being found uh, <laughs> by, by yes, a prince. Yes, yes, exactly. And no princes here. We've got our two strong princesses, and they are revered by the people in their worlds. I mean, Nausicaa is held up as essentially the best of what the Valley of the Wind has to offer. And uh, with Kushana, uh, she leads... Uh, in a military style, the little the little dude beneath her, uh, Kuratawa, uh, that that guy, the, the counselor. I mean, we've got we've got some we've got some side cast here. Whether it's Kuratawa or whether it's Abel, maybe it's Lord Yupa. Might be slightly biased because in the English dub, he is voiced by Sir Patrick Stewart, and I can listen to him <laughs> read the phone book. But I also like him because he's a quiet badass. He's the kind of uh, like absolute unit of a character like his <laughs> reputation precedes him yeah, that's and true. it precedes him so well he doesn't have to demonstrate it like i think of that game of thrones quote like a king doesn't have to say he's king yes so like i like characters like that like you don't have to sh- that just quietly demonstrate their power or no like you know if, there's a part earlier in the movie where nausicaa's dad is like hey why don't you come settle in the valley of the wind and he's like no i gotta go around and find out like he he's not tied to any specific nation he's more like a representation of the entirety of humanity like he t- knows the pegites he knows the tomekians he knows everybody he's the guy that knows everybody and they know about him uh, i believe when yeah. when he when he jumps onto the ship the, one of the 
Tomeki and Commander saying, like, all right, boys, this is your chance to find honor because here comes Lord Yupa. And uh, I think he immediately takes three of them down and grabs the Commander by the throat, knife right underneath it. That was my superlative. <laughs> that's it. that's we'll, Lord Yupa. If you kill him, we'll you'll bring be it up famous. Later. We'll bring it up later. That's right. But, but yes, I will say, uh, like, he, he doesn't have to be that hands-on in this movie. It really is Nausicaa's story. Nausicaa and Abel, who Abel is uh, representative of the, the Pegite uh, people, um, who, if I, now th- I, I will admit, I only watched it once. And so there were some of the, like, the, the very recent history of the kingdoms weren't, weren't completely clear to me. But the, the Pegite kingdom, where the Great Dome was, was just recently destroyed by Ohms. Mm-hmm. And was that, is, is there any indication, was that due to them meddling with the baby Ohm? Yeah, it was implied that the Pegites had lured the insects in. I don't think it was the same baby Ohm that's seen later, but they... They were messing with things they really shouldn't They have. triggered the Ohm to come attack because they were under attack by Tomikia. So it's like, oh, I don't... Enemy of your enemy is my friend. So yeah. in this case, let's sick the toxic jungle on our enemies that are trying to invade us. Because it was implied that Tomikia had invaded Pegite because Pegite had found the, the warrior embryo. And when Tomikia heard about it, I was like, oh, we're going to invade. And that's why they had Listel on their crashed air... The, ship that was carrying the embryo because she was and a what brought the story to, to nausicaa yeah, in the she first was a place. hostage so it was implied that like tomika had already attacked and invaded and so the pegites in desperation turned to weaponize the toxic jungle against them even if it took out their own city and their own people in the process now for, for lizzie and i it was our first watch there was a there, there were two surprising scenes uh and i'm not talking like big surprises but just sort of like the action moved fast to where I, I really wondered just how quickly we could pivot towards one thing or another. The first was when Lord Yupa shows up and sees Nausicaa's secret room, the garden. Now, uh, in your plot summary, Lizzie, you were you were talking about how she was out exploring the jungle, maybe looking for civilization. I remember her taking a very small spore and putting it into a very small vial. What a wonderful opening scene, by the way, to to, to come across that carapace of the Ohm and to hold it in such reverence. I think that comes across really well in the Japanese audio, the reverence for this great sort of husk of a beast. And then to be underneath the eye, uh, eyelid, eye stalk, eye... I shall lens. I shall whatever it is. While all the rest of the spores come down, it's almost like she's tossing around in freshly fallen snow. Uh, just another visual delight from this movie. But she's out there and she collects that little spore, and I think nothing of it. And then forty minutes later, we see the secret room. Did you have any emotions come up when the secret room was revealed, seeing what she was up to? Yes, I mean I. I'm not going to lie. When she was like, I want Lord Yuba, I want you to come back and see my room. And I looked over at Aaron and I was like, that's, that's just like, I'm, I don't know where this movie's going. And like, yeah, what's going right on now. here? Like, yeah. And, um, and uh, again, like totally, oh, not, I had no expectation of, of what I was going to expect. But, you know, her father is just executed. She knows that she's going to have to go with Kushana. She's, 
absolutely heartbroken. And she's also really disappointed in herself as well because, you know, in that moment before running off, she she lost her temper. And so she's, I think, just dealing with a gambit of emotions. And so she's in this room. That was probably one of the prettiest scenes that I had that in, in the movie for me. And it was a really interesting pivot where to me it's like okay all right so they're like nothing is what it seems and that is that excitement that I felt in that moment of realizing okay so everything this movie is going to be about everything unfolding and that what they believe to be true is absolutely nothing of the sort yeah we all kind of get to make this discovery together so that that was the scene for me where things really changed and my curiosity was fully peaked. My curiosity was not peaked when Obaba was talking about the prophecy of the blue robe clothed person to come from the golden field. I'm just like, that's some nonsense. It doesn't matter. Clearly yeah. that's going to be <laughs> like Nausicaa, you know, like. <laughs> well, I mean, we, point, we didn't yeah. know of like the, the kind of life underneath the toxic jungle. Uh, but then, you know, 40 minutes and we see that. And the, the second scene I was referencing that was a big shock was when the Tolmechians arrive and it's just like, boom, boom, 30 seconds. Her dad isn't even really trying that hard. King Gilles, he's just holding a sword, bust down the door, instant murder. Like that, that like, whoa. It was also implied he was bedridden. Like he could not move. He could not fight for himself. Yeah. No, because he was under some type of ailment. Right. Yeah, it's not. It wasn't specified in the English dub. I think it might be. It. It. Or rather, it was implied because there was a character later saying like, "Oh, I have the same disease as King Jill." Mito. It's, yeah. It's from living in proximity to the toxic jungle. So even though they're and, relatively yeah. safe with because of the, the winds in the valley, keeping the valley relatively safe, just it's like you know having like a chunk of uranium next door. Yeah, it, it, that's it. Seemingly, almost yeah, like one to one, and and yeah, it's either Mito or Goal, one of those other kind of three guys. The peanut that gallery. Are, yeah, the peanut gallery crew. Well, like they th- apparently there's kind of a a sickness that can uh, start to paralyze your your limbs. I believe in the in the Japanese audio he says like yeah, these are eventually I won't be able to move this hand. And Nausicaa, who greets that with love, is just like, well, those are, no, those are hands to be proud of because you were a strong, hard worker. But she was secretly working with this uh, sort of underground grow room, (laughs) greenhouse in a way, to like learn about the pure growing flowers, succulents, plants, whatever they are down there to, uh, uh, I think it was implied to try to find a cure. Now, this is something I want to bring up to both of you. It does seem like the only person in the world that has this knowledge or has this kind of ambition is Nausicaa. There's nobody else that has any clue. As far as we see, because we don't know the whole entire world. So this right. Point. But like out of the cast characters, yeah, she's the only one, like again, and she also has the greatest empathy. She's also the one seen trying to communicate with the insects as if they are fellow living be- like creatures and not just monsters. So I think it, it applies to her empathy to a degree too. And also I had major envy of her garden room. I want like I have plants all over my house. <laughs> like I want <laughs> I want that room. Hey, some people want Bell's library. Some people want Nausicaa's garden room. That's right. That's right. I think she I think what's really interesting is that 
to to your question, Dustin, is that, you know, people tend to make decisions and choices based on their biases. So when everybody is operating under the assumption that these insects are deadly, that they eat us, there's no – they no one wants to challenge that because they're not necessarily asking the question of why. They're only focused on the point of, well, these insects must be evil because they're eating us. You know, there's never anybody, at least in the movie, that is challenging that and saying, why do you think that is? And I think Nausicaa, because she's somebody that le- that leads with love, and understanding, and like you said, JD, she's got this sense of empathy. She's willing to try to understand them because she recognizes that they have some type of personality. You know, she's able to charm them and say, you know, you, with with Lord Yupa in the very beginning, she's like, you don't want to hurt him. We're not here to hurt you. Go back to the jungle. She understands that on some level that they can be reasoned with. Yeah, it's cool. So, yeah, I mean, it's really, really neat. So, I mean, I think she's probably the only person that really is willing to challenge that because she's the only person willing to have empathy for them. It does go against one of my actual pet peeves, pun intended, when <laughs> when people that have pets talk to their animals as if they can understand the English they're speaking. <laughs> animals can understand your emotion and they can read the muscles in your face greater than other humans can but as far as like actual like (laughs) sentences or paragraphs they don't get it but what was this goes against it i found myself liking that nausicaa is maybe it's just the emotion to the ohms or to any of the other creatures we have those cool kind of two-legged ostrich-like mounts uh obviously we've got the the fox squirrel who by the way they don't lean into the fox squirrel being a hero. It's just a companion. Yeah. It's, 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 not an, it's not an Abu or an Iago. It's not a Raja. Why am I only thinking of Aladdin here? It's, it's, <laughs> flounder, Sebastian. It's not a gargoyle. flounder. It's not a Sebastian. It's not a, it's not a cool gargoyle. It's, 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 yeah, it's, it's just there. And it's just fun for the animators to animate, which they did a lot of. Before we get into superlatives... I do have to, we have to mention the the animation, the eye candy. And I think I need to toss it over to you, JD, because this is really your oeuvre. Uh, my overall sentiment of the film is like, it has the 80s nostalgia to it. And there's something about 80s animation, whether it is Japanese or Western or American, it's, I call it the warm fuzzy. It's just something about, there's a warm fuzziness to 80s animation. You see it in Nausicaa, Little Nemo. Um, Little Nemo was one I watched early and did not realize it was um, sort of of the Eastern style. I believe Miyazaki may have worked on Nemo before he went and made Ghibli. I think they. Yeah, it was not Ghibli. Yeah, yeah, some of his. Yeah, it it predates Ghibli. And also, Last Unicorn, as animated by Rankin Bass, outsourced some of its animation to Japan as well. But, like, The Last Unicorn was an 80s film, 70s or 80s. Like, that whole era of 70s, 80s animation has, like, that warm, kind of, like, fuzzy. Maybe it's because it was, you know, on the CRTVs, on VHS, just that warm. Part of it, too, yeah. The soft watercolor. Secret of Nim is another good example. 
from uh, Don Bluth. Hell, most of the Don Bluth library. Uh, American Tale, Land Before Time. Something about the movies of that era just have that, maybe it's the hand-natured watercoloring, especially like Japanese anime in general is highly known for its highly detailed backgrounds, and a lot of them are hand-watercolored. And you definitely see that in the funky Taku jungle landscape that is Nausicaa. I will say too, knowing that, looking back and realizing that this is Miyazaki's, one of his first movies, you I could see, oh, here's the beginning of some of the Ghibli tropes. One of them I call the Ghibli floof, hair floof. When a character gets like highly emotional or stressed, their hair floofs out a little bit. Oh, wow. Uh, like there, Nausicaa does it in one scene when she's upset. There's also the Ghibli mustache or the Miyazaki mustache where it's like a male character will just have a mustache that completely encompasses half their face. Right. You know, I, I really considered I really considered uh, coming into this record <laughs> with a big a big fluffy mustache <laughs> just because of this movie. Uh, uh, but yeah, it, it, it's and it's so striking as like, well, that's just how the style of these people here. But yeah, it's just yeah, a, a, a trope is almost the wrong word. It is the right word, but it's almost the wrong word because typically we like to assign negative things to tropes. And I would say that this movie, if I'm using the negative connotation to trope, was tropeless. The things that it has are positive patterns. We'll say one another animation quirk was the what I like to call the Ghibli run, which is like there's when characters run in Ghibli films, it has a very distinct smooth style, and it like. Pat, 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 pat. Like, also the Foley sound was a lot of fun in this. Especially for the, like, cre- bug noises. The ohm. And very 80s synth noises brought in for the Foley mm-hmm. effects. What was in our Ghibli? Oh, also Miyazaki in general. A common theme in his movies, along with environmentalism and, you know, peace and cohabitation, is flying and the sky. He's really, really into flying stuff. So you get to see all the big clouds. There was some stellar flight animation. Like, the scene yeah. where the... Asbel in the in the English dub that I listened to, his name was Asbel, not Abel. We don't know, haven't met him yet. He's just the Pejai pilot attacking the Tolmikian ships that are transporting Nausicaa and her friends as hostages. Mm-hmm. There's that really cool scene where they're looking up. You just and she sees just the glint of the shadow against the sun. So yes, he's flying smart and hiding in the sun as he's before he dives in to attack. And also just the like later when there's another air fight, seeing the the tension of detail to put the cast the shadows of the planes on the clouds like as yeah. it, like that's um a bump in the lamp moment in animation have you ever heard that term bumping the lamp no that actually goes back to who framed roger rabbit and what happened there's a scene in who framed roger rabbit where roger rabbit because roger rabbit is simultaneously live action with animation overlaid it so the animators had to work very hard to incorporate these cell-drawn characters into a three-dimensional world. And mind you, this is way before CGI and all that. So there's a scene where Roger Rabbit bumps a lamp, and the a- Disney animators paid such attention to detail that they animated all the shadows around the room to match the lamp as it flung around. So it's become like a it's become a term in animation that if that when you know they go the extra mile in animation mm-hmm. for detail, it's called a bump the lamp moment. I feel like this movie went the extra mile with animation in so many ways. Yes. Not just the flying, but also I, I love when the this movie focuses on wind in so many ways. Everyone's clothes react then ripple in the wind uniquely 
and animated differently every three seconds. It is not a static effect that is like redone. And, you know, we think about what is, what am I thinking of? Uh, the, the Fox version of, of Robin Hood oh. is the exact same oh, yes. animation as, uh, I believe it's Snow White dancing with some of the dwarves. It's one of those. Uh, like just recycled animation. Everything here seems like it has such purpose. And I thought that was wonderful. Any other animations that really went the extra mile for you, Lizzie? Their use of color and expressing light. It was really, really visually interesting to me because they were able to really perfectly, um, you know, I, I talk about it a little bit in my superlatives, but talking about the plant room that that Nausicaa has. I mean, this idea of you imagine walking into this kind of almost sacred space and you see just like lights and sparkles and everything being illuminated. And to me, that was really what made it feel magical and kind of like a jaw-dropping moment for me. And that was just one of many scenes throughout the movie. I just love their use of color to be able to portray light shining. And I, I think that was just so interesting. And that had to have taken so much time and attention to detail. The time and the attention to detail came because of the care, because they it mattered. Yes. Uh, th- th- this is how it looks. The one that stands out to me, I wasn't even thinking about this before you said it, but th- something about the glittering is uh, from far away when the enraged ohms were stampeding and you see all the red lights over their eyes, there's a moment when they begin to circle Nausicaa's prone body and you start seeing from the center them turning blue when they stop stampeding. And that's not animated in the sense of like we're going to color swap or palette swap. It was like little pe- like sprinkles of glitter that change color. And it's something where, like, that's an hour, 45 minutes in, and you're just, uh, you're still poised to be amazed by the visuals on screen, uh, which is why this, one of the big reasons this was such a delight to watch. Now, I know I've done it with JD, and now I've done it with Lizzie. I, we keep dancing around superlatives. How about we just get straight to it? Let's do it. JD, who's the MVP of this movie? Uh, I voted for Lord Yupa. For a being voiced by Patrick Stewart, and for the who he did a great job, lent, like he had the gravitas of the kind of voice for the character, like this kind of, like I said, I like to call this character the quiet badass. They don't have to demonstrate their power; <laughs> they use it well. And like I said, his reputation precedes him. And yeah, I think he was a well done character. Like he was honestly, he kind of stepped up as a pseudo father father figure for Nausicaa Nausicaa, after her yeah. own father passes away too so absolutely very cool character how about you lizzie mvp i put allison loman she is the american actor that dubs over nasica's voice and i put her i first of all i love her as an actress she's when i looked at her imdb she's most well known for drag me to hell and flicka and i loved her voice because you know we've we've spoken so much about Nausicaa as a princess and just the type of, of princess that she was and the heart that she had. And I think that Allison did such a wonderful job of kind of marrying together this very strong, brave, but also very scared young woman. And I just think she did such a good job. I mean, she made watching the movie just 
flow so easily for me. And I, I really appreciated what she was able to bring to the character. That, that's great to get from a voice actor. Well, for me, it's Hayao Miyazaki for the vision, for the care, and what led to an ongoing wonderful reputation and career. Uh, this was something I needed to crowdsource to pick what to choose. I'm so glad that we chose it. As I think this entire, the totality of this movie uh, elevated. It's, it's certainly greater than the sum of its parts. And I want to give that. This is the start of his catalog. You this see, is just the beginning. You see yeah. him evolve these themes much like as across his library as he progresses. All right. Who's your best supporting, JD? I put Tato the fox squirrel. Because it's a cute animal design. And like you were saying, he's not in a boo. He's not in a yago. He's the sweet spot for me of being a sidekick without being annoying. Yes, thank you. <laughs> it is an animal that it's an animal that behaves like an animal that believably does. It doesn't do the weird thing that Disney does where it turns all their horses into dogs. <laughs> yeah, it's just it's just a mammal. Yep. Wonderful. Who's your best supporting, Lizzie? I put Kiritawa, who was Kushana's sidekick. I yeah. I have to say, like I I really appreciated his sarcasm. And I feel like he, and at least in the dubbed version, there's a lot of really funny, witty banter going on between the two of them. And where you kind of can't 100% tell if they like each other or not. <laughs> like they... You can tell that right. they respect each other, but, you know, like when Kushana's plane goes down, he's kind of like, ah, all right. And then it's just, I, I appreciated his sarcasm. I feel like he brought some comedic relief to the role, and I, I appreciated him for that. Interesting thing about you the end of what you just said there. This movie does not have a lot of comedy. Very little, comparatively. And I, th I didn't find it lacking. I didn't feel as if I needed a silly sidekick. The amount of comedy we got was, was perfect on the low end. Yeah, most of it uh, came from the peanut gallery, that trio of old dudes. Yeah, and, and when you got it, it was nice. But really, this was focused on more of a, of a hero's journey, not on the antics that surround it. Uh, I went with the guy who played Lord Yupa in the Japanese version, Goro Naya. Uh, his voice is a uh, common type of voice in these styles of like these features, which is deeper, breaking up the sentences, almost a uh, almost a South Korean style, uh, and it was it was really well done. And then it matches his big mustache combo thing, uh, which I really liked. It was less of a trope, more of a necessity. Uh, it's nice to have the wise old man. It's nicer when the wise old man is also the most incredible swordsman in the world. JD, what's your hidden gem here? The one line of Tony J dialogue of the narrator, because I freaking love Tony J as a great voice actor too. For those who may not be familiar, Tony J was the voice of Count Lord Frollo from the Hunchback of Notre Dame, and he just has oh, such he is a great, great voice. And like he's he's popped up as narrator in a couple of odd places in Disney in the Disney Library. So like to have one single line of Tony J dialogue, I was like, yes. <laughs> Trivia insert from Dustin here. At, at the time, at least, uh, Minister Frollo was the only Disney character to ever quote scripture, which is where he's holding the sword above. Um, mm. He's holding the sword above Quasimodo, and he uh, holds it up, and he says, "And he will plunge the wicked into the fiery pit, <laughs> right before the gargoyle falls underneath him." Strange little bit of trivia, at least 
497 or whenever that was. Yeah. Scariest, most evil villain. Great Um, song, too. Yes. Oh, yeah. Great song, too. Villain, Disney villains always have the best song. Jade, we gotta stop. We're gonna go 30 minutes into another direction, which we should, but we can't. Uh, What's your hidden gem, Lizzie? I put Jodie Benson. She is the voice actress that voices Ariel from The Little Mermaid. And she plays Lestelle and Abel's mother. She has a really quick cameo, I suppose, if you want to call it that, where she, you know, she's able to come in and swoop in with a little girl and rescue Nausicaa. They trade clothes and she leaves with them and she apologizes for the way that her people have behaved. Yeah. So it's, she's probably only on screen in, in a speaking role for maybe 60 seconds but that was she has such a recognizable voice so that was a fun nod to see her there did either of you catch the mark hamill cameo i did even though i didn't watch that version he was the voice of in the english dub it was the pedgite mayor so the guy that was like kind of in charge when they arrived at pedgite for me my my hidden gem was our future post-apocalyptic flora and fauna i think that's a really fun (laughs) fantasy aspect of this and JD, if we had 30 more minutes, uh, you could go off more on that. But it, I think what's really great about this, it's a world that's not quite our own. With the mounts, with the insects, the flying centipede thing was awesome. I think there's an aspect to it. I think of the uh, King Kong movie from 03 or 05, where they did some incredible insect work. The Peter Jackson one? Yeah. With the insect grotto that traumatized yeah. the children? Mm-hmm. And I think there's some aspect here that like this was just on the right edge of not being too traumatizing, but being like, oh, this is critical danger, though. So I thought that was cool. This is a weird one for this movie. JD, recast someone. I honestly had no suggestion. Ugh, that isn't going to work for me. I need you to think while I go over to Lizzie. You got to think of something real quick, JD. You're on the spot. Lizzie, go over to a recast. Something. Anything. So... I have said this man before when I've done recast, and that is just because he's epic. But I think, you know, in listening to the American dub version, there's a lot of really popular early 2000s stars, you know, Uma Thurman, Shia LaBeouf, Patrick Stewart, who, of course, you know, can span any decade. But um, so I wanted to think about who I feel like was super iconic and could potentially span any decade or was perhaps very popular. And the early aughts. And I went with my man, the legend himself, Tim Curry. I wanted him to replace <laughs> Kiritoa. I love Tim Curry so much. He has that sarcastic mm-hmm. kind of almost where he can – because the thing about Kiritoa is that he's he's definitely considered a bad guy in this movie, no doubt about it. But he – because he's very self-serving. But he's also <laughs> – I would consider him also to be a coward. And I think that that kind of combination makes for kind of a slimy, wormy character. And I think that Tim Curry can do that perfectly. I think that his (laughs) voice and he can do anything. I just, I adore him. And the second that that popped in my mind, I just was like, well, I've got it. That's, that's him. So Tim for everything. Lizzie, I got some good news for you. In the English. anime. In the English dub of another Miyazaki film, The Cat Returns, Tim Curry plays the villain. Well, well that's going to be my second. Look anime at this. Movie that I've got to watch. Look at this. I mean, he's 
And you know he's into it because, you know, he was Hexus in Fern, Fern Gully. So, I mean, you know that he's all about movies about cohabitation and protecting our world, and he's into it. You know he's into it because he's into anything. He's into <laughs> anything and everything. He played a I Russian like commander in a 90s version of a Red Alert Command and Conquer game. Space! He's ridiculous in what he chooses to do, and we love him for it. My recast is unfair because I can't pick an early 80s Japanese voice actress to replace Yoshiko Sakakibara because I don't know any. So that's unfair. So what I'm going to do is I'm going to I'm going to fall back to something which is I believe we should have more voice actors doing voice actor things instead of regular actors doing voice acting things. There's an up and coming voice actor right now. Her name is Ashley Birch. The timing doesn't work, but I think that having her play uh, Nausicaa would be something wonderful. She's known right now for Tiny Tina, Critical Role, The Mythic Quest, among other things. It's a cop-out answer, but sometimes you just got to rely on something like that, something that's a little weak. We go back to you, JD. What's your recast? All right, since you're pulling my leg here. Yes. I would probably... Let's have like a few line cameo of another of my favorite voice actors, Keith David's. Sure. We can recast oh, him wonderful. as Nausicaa's dad. We love Keith David on Retro Movie Roundtable freaking love Keith David. That would be that would be sick. Okay, let's go to something else that's not forcing us to replace something in the movie. What's your best shot, JD? You mentioned it earlier actually. It was that scene of calm in the very beginning when she's exploring the jungle and she sits under the ohm eye shield and the snow float like the spore snow falls down on her. It's just yeah. a very scenic thing because there's something um, Miyazaki, I saw in an interview he once described it is particularly seen in Miyazaki and the Ghibli library is while American and Western storytelling tends to be boom, 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 boom with action game from plot point to plot point to plot point to action, to action, to action, to character moment, character moment, character moment. Japanese and like Eastern storytelling, they tend to give just as much attention to the beats in between. So this plot, this movie is not slow at all. It is fast paced. It is the, pacing is well done and there's a lot that happens but there are these moments of calm and beauty the breath in between and that you get was a chance a, to rest and that was a scene that cattle that was a good example that was a stellar example of that well hey nathan will know this it's it's why there are notes and it's why there are rests you gotta have both <laughs> lizzie uh what's your best shot so i had mentioned the the private room before. So I'll go with my second favorite best shot, which is towards the end of the film, once the you know, the world is seemingly going to be all right in the sense that the alms are now calm and the great warrior is destroyed and things seem to be okay. Except for the fact that our precious princess has fallen. And the Alms decide to use their golden tentacles to revive her. I think that there's this shot when they've all released their tentacles and they're rising Nausicaa up into the air. And you get the vantage point that the villagers in the valley get. And where it's like this, almost like this gigantic tidal wave of gold because all of the tentacles are kind of marrying together with small spaces in between. Yeah. And the way that they're moving and just the attention to detail, I had specifically thought to myself, knowing that this was hand drawn of just saying that had to have taken 
forever. And it is a beautiful shot. So to me, it had big payoff as well. So that would definitely be my uh, my runner up for best shot. Oh, what a great shot it is. It don't, <laughs> it don't, both of your shots make me think that I chose poorly. Uh, my, mine, <laughs> so, so I thought I had it picked, which is when Nausicaa's in pursuit of the like the dirigible that's holding the bait, the bait ohm, and she holds her arms out wide, uh, sort of showing like, hey, I'm not like, sh- sh- like I'm not in a, a position to attack you. And one of the Pegite people says, it's Lestelle uh, because of the clothes. And she lets the glider go. I thought that was striking. But then just within five minutes, uh, we get a situation where the pilots are trying to fix their ship. And one of them looks up and there's Nausicaa holding a machine gun in both hands slung to her side. Like, whoa, <laughs> now that is a sight. It's like action movie, like Jesse Ventura in Predator, her holding that uh, machine gun. So, uh, yeah, mine, mine are a little off the cuff. Yours are better. I mean, that's, that's, best <laughs> that scene struck me, too. And also, it was yeah. at that point where I realized, for, and I wonder if you guys noticed, may have picked up on this trend, or maybe I was the only one that noticed this, was that we, I, we've been talking about how Nausicaa is the princess of love. She's full of empathy. She's full of love. She's anti-violence. She screams multiple times throughout the movie, the killing must stop. we got to stop killing each other. For someone who's so anti-violence, anti-killing, she like puts herself in self-destructive situations a lot. She's not going to let anything stop her. Yeah. Like like she puts herself in harm's way in a lot of situations. <laughs> and I'm like, okay, can we get some of that self like maybe some self-love there? <laughs> it's it's because she puts herself directly in the path of that ohm going towards the acid lake and her shoes start to burn. That's what ends the rage. Like she specifically puts herself in those positions. Yeah, well, a part of love is also sacrifice and I think, you know, kind of like taking up your cross in a sense. So I think that she, uh, I think she recognizes that. And even Obaba says that at one point, I forget exactly what she says, but she says like she sacrificed herself to save, to save her people. And so I think, you know, she definitely puts herself in really compromising dangerous situations but i think she does it because she recognizes like somebody has to so and if i'm the princess i'm the leader of these people so who better to do it than me so i think she has that mentality of like well someone's got to do it it might as well be me that's a good point let's move on to best scene here jd uh i put the childhood memory flashback of when nausicaa there's this whole scene where she has a flashback when she, after she gets knocked out and then later she wakes up in the underground purified forest part. But she has a memory flashback to when she was little and her dad comes, she's like out playing in the fields and her dad comes, picks her up and even her mom's, the only shot of her mom or mention of her mom and they pick her up and like, come on, we're gonna go for a ride. And she's like, okay. And then she finds out like you, this, they totally encapsulate a kid that has done something wrong and doesn't want to be caught. She's like, <laughs> no, wait, let's not go this way. And it turns out she hit a baby ohm in a tree. And then they take it and she's screaming like, it hasn't done anything wrong. Don't, please don't kill it. It didn't do anything. And they're, and it's her dad that says, you know, we, the humans and the insects can't live together. You know that. That's, the, the, that's just like a, a core memory. And that just totally encapsulates mm-hmm. Nausicaa's entire character. That's just like, okay, she's been this way since she was like three. 
the entire world has been this way and she is the only one who kind of gets it yeah cool scene lizzie best scene so again i'm gonna go with my second best because i mentioned my earlier one of my favorite scenes is the very beginning with the fox squirrel just because i felt like that was I feel like they did that because they could have so easily just presented a fox squirrel. But the idea that they did it in that particular way of having the fox squirrel bite her and she does not fight back. She remains calm and allows the fox squirrel to kind of come to that realization on its own. I think that it they tried to show representation of her character. So that was probably my favorite. My second favorite was the full – opening sequence in the fact that I love when movies establish kind of a backstory of lore that you get to watch. I just think it's so exciting. And uh, this one was no different. I love that beginning little scene where they show all the giant warriors and kind of leaving you now with understanding the context of the world that they're living in. I thought that was a really exciting scene and Mm -hmm. was very curious. Yeah, it sets up it sets up what we're about to experience very well. Uh, my best scene actually involves the peanut gallery. It's when the uncle, the sergeant at arms, and one other hostage is telling the other princess Kashana that she's nothing like their princess. Like, this is how you do things. We only use a little fire. We appreciate the wind and water because they've mostly been just kind of yuck yuckheads. They've been just kind of bumbling in a way. And that was a moment for them to show that we represent these values of where we're from. You'd like to think if the plane with the em- the embryo never landed there with the bugs attached, you'd like to think that if the if it, the world was perfect, that maybe the toxic jungle or the sea of decay would cover most of the world, and that the little paradise. The, the valley of the wind would be like Noah's Ark. They'd be like, well, actually, no, you guys were righteous. You guys did it right. That's how I like to think of it. We don't know that, but that's why I'd like to think of it. And the, the those those guys in that situation kind of show like, this is how we still care ab- about things, even when you bring your war to us. I thought that was very cool. Best wardrobe or makeup? Take that as you will, JD. <laughs> I'm going to add like this I noticed this for the first time upon the upon this viewing like I like uh-huh. I watched it several times growing new up new detail and new detail to me but you um outright got it on your summary Lizzie that her initially pink dress that she's wearing the pedjite clothing as a disguise I didn't catch the first time around that it turned blue because it got soaked with the own blood of the baby ohm like I totally missed that as a kid I don't know how I didn't catch that. I missed it until Lizzie said it too. It's an eagle eye. It's that like like suctiony sound, and you can um, there's like that suctiony sound of like as it's changing, <laughs> and it is kind of like a blink and you miss it. But because um, that was one thing I noticed, I was like, wait, her dress is blue. Her dress was just red, and so I kind of took a couple of rewindings to to finally catch it. Yeah, I did end up rewinding to catch it too. But that also goes back into the creature features because they probably gave the ohms blue blood because that's a shout out to horseshoe crabs. Because horseshoe there crabs have blue blood. Yeah. What was your best wardrobe or makeup moment, Lizzie? I loved their use of gold. I think that that was such a reoccurring color that I kept seeing throughout the movie. And I know that it's technically not wardrobe or makeup, but 
I suppose with animation, it's kind of a sub makeup, if you will. We'll make it work. Um, but, but, you know, there's the Kushana is always wearing the, you know, she's dressed in white, but she has all these gold accessories on her. And then you've got the the fields of gold and that Nausicaa has during her dreams. And then the final one at the end because of its, because of the Om tentacles. It just kind of feels like gold is a common theme throughout the movie. And so I really, I loved the kind of representation of that. And it's striking. Like I think of gold yes. when I think of this movie. Uh, for me, it's the masks. It's the respirator type masks that they wear. And it was a choice for them to be like floppy or made of canvas or something because it meant that they had to animate it more. It would have been so much easier to make it static, to make them just on the face instead of kind of flaps on the side. They even put masks on the little mounts. Um, I, I thought it was neat. There was some seriousness to when her mask gets knocked off after saving Absol or Abel. And I, I thought that was neat. It, it made you feel like you were part of a world that needed protection from a savage frontier. I okay. Did, I did notice that the Pegite masks were just like they were just yeah fabrics. I'm like, what degree of PPE <laughs> do these people actually need, like to survive the right. toxic jungle? Unless it's like a special fabric. Yeah, it was kind of like sand, like like nomad esque the way that they had theirs. Okay, JD, change one thing about this movie. Tone down Nausicaa's crying a little bit. Like, no, I'm okay with her crying because she's an emotional person, but it seemed like there was a lot of it in, like, the second half of the movie. I mean, it's important to show the, the wide range of emotion, but I can see that being too much. And I get that. And, like, people are allowed to cry. Princesses are allowed to cry. And it and it makes sense for her character, but it was just... It somehow struck me weird. Like, she's like, okay, she's crying a lot. <laughs> it's also something that I didn't think about until just now. I believe this entire movie happens in the course of 36 hours. So she's tired. Wow. Yeah, like, that's true. <laughs> she's tired. <laughs> she's tired. And we all know uh, how the emotions can boil up when you're tired. Lizzie, change one thing about this movie. This was really hard, but I, I don't even necessarily feel like I want to petition for this, but it would just be more or less something that would have been interesting is I, you know, Nasa has this really unique relationship with the insects and I think it would have been kind of neat if maybe there was, it's very clear that there's some kind of telepathic communication on some kind of level mm -hmm. and she's able to charm them and speak to them. I think that would have been kind of cool if you were able to like hear them speak back to her, not in a Disney, you know, everybody can hear what they're saying kind of way, but in like a special kind of they have this own form of communication. I think that would have been kind of cool to to explore. Oh, it's okay, miss. You ain't the sea of decay. Yeah, that's, yeah right. that's right. Exactly. Like nothing like that. I mean, because that would have just under decay. Completely <laughs> under decay. Yeah, I mean, that oh, would don't have you just worry about that thing. Everything's gonna be out there. <laughs> that would have really, I think, there. There's this special magic, and I think that would have kind of commercialized it too much. But yeah. I think the two of them are, you know, like specifically uh, the alms that she's speaking to towards the end. I think that would have been super neat to maybe have. It's, uh, it's almost on like a, an elevated level. The communication is through like image projection. Yes. But but would it have been nicer to have some some type of like words, even if they're just single word communications? I agree with you. 
I think that it's clear that most of the world does not understand that the toxic jungle or the sea of decay is something that you cannot fight and win against. We do have an ancient legend that tells of a blue-robed figure that walks from a golden field, but I think either from the Tachmerians, is that right? Help me. Tolmecians? Thank you. I think that maybe somebody affiliated with the Tolmecians or the Pegites, maybe a historian or a scientist, has some knowledge of what this could be. Because in a thousand years, nobody's figured out, like, hey, the world heals itself, which is what the Sea of Decay is. So instead of it being like ancient legend, uh, I think it would be cool if there was somebody else. And I think for the time, the, the, the time that we would need, we would need to remove some other character's development here to do it. But so, somebody else who's not like an, a, a fantastic swordsman, or a young pilot who can be swayed by Nausicaa's mission, somebody who's like, no, actually what you're thinking is right, and we have the key. Here's the key. Go get it. But then the more I go that far, the more I realize I'm just describing a different movie. Um, but that's that's something I would change. Somebody needs to understand the science of this. Last one. What's our best quote, J.D.? We talked about the one I initially wrote down, which was, that's Lord Yupa. Kill him and you'll be famous. Because that's like... You get, like, one, like... That's cool. It's A, it's a cool line, but B, you get the whole um, distillation of a character by reputation alone in one sentence. So I'm going to back it up with a second one, which is, too much fire gives birth to nothing. Because hmm. that's also a common theme. It, it's demonstrated. It's like, like, they say, like, the air is saturated with rage, and that, like, the mor- one of the morals of this movie is rage and hate and fire and it ultimately burns it doesn't heal it's detrimental and destructive whereas you know cool wind air water calmer empathetic feelings are what ultimately help and that's also a theme that carries over into other future miyazaki films especially princess mononoke i love when the quote really has some like philosophy behind it lizzie what's yours Shana is she reveals that she is a wounded princess and she reveals that she's she's missing a limb and then she responds with yes and whatever lucky man becomes my husband right she'll see far worse than that yeah and I think that was just a perfectly sassy line <laughs> I loved it so much yeah it definitely it raised my eyebrows like whoa here we go yeah that was almost yeah. one of my picks for best wardrobe moment very suggestive, but not enough that it would be considered inappropriate and right, right, per- like perfectly sassy, and also a bit, a bit odd because what it reveals for you, and I don't know if it reveals it for the youngest of children, but it shows that she could, she's not really bound at all. Is I can remove this hand. Oh, yeah. uh, I, yes. I, I have my full capacities. I'm not <laughs> actually bound at the wrist or my feet because I can take them off. Uh, yeah, yeah, interesting. Mine is actually tied to the, the kind of the mission, the environmentalist part of this, uh, if I didn't make that clear earlier. Uh, the quote is, who made such a terrible mess of the world? And it's a sad quote because it's just unfortunately a little too real for me. But it reminds me of two other quotes from other movies. One of them is uh, The Matrix, where we learn that humans scorch the sky because they thought the machines depended on solar energy, but they were wrong. But the other one it makes me think of is one of my favorites. I can't wait for the threshold to hit where we can cover Mad Max, Fury Road, 
It's it's an exclamation from several of the characters in the movie. Who killed the world? And we did. And it's so strange to say, guys, I'm on I'm on team Sea of Decay. I'm on team Toxic Jungle because we did it. We don't have to. But it is now time for us to give a little opportunity back to JD to continue to plug any of your, your – maybe you're giving a talk or, or something at the upcoming conventions, anything else that we can learn about you. Uh, you can find most of my updates on both my stories and my art and painting dragon feathers across social media, Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, Tumblr, TikTok. All that stuff. I have processed videos of some how I make some of my art. So my next show is going to be KatsuCon in February. This is 2023. I'm also, but keep an eye out. I do visual art. I open for commissions. I'm closed right now because I'm prepping for con, but I will open up again for them soon. So custom tattoos, dioramas, illustrations, whatever you want. I just did a cover art piece for an upcoming digital magazine called Altered Reality for speculative fiction, so sci-fi, awesome. fantasy, horror. It's going to be free to the public. Check it out um, later January. It should be up. Alter- that's Altered Reality uh, online magazine. And I, fingers crossed, one of my New Year's goals is to, um, I do write as well. I have been polishing and reworking a cryptid-themed manuscript that I'm hoping to have done and hopefully out in the wild by hopefully the end of 2023. Oh, awesome. Full speed ahead for that. I love hearing that. How hard would it be to fit in an oil painting of Nathan and I on the front of the Titanic with a Kraken? Oh, I could do that. (laughs) (laughs) We'll talk about the money details later. All right, JD, let's uh, let's speak about how you recommend this movie. Uh, Point five to five stars we work on a half scale rating what do you rate nausicaa of the valley of the wind 4.5 stars great animation great voice acting in the english dub at least excellent storytelling but like i said this is mizaki at the start of his career (laughs) so yeah we have got we've got quite the ladder to climb afterwards yeah maybe i will say some of his later work outranks it maybe that'll be a surprise for lizzie and aaron to be like hey it's time to do another ghibli movie (laughs) Lizzie, what's your rating? So I gave this four stars. I chose four because I have no real basis for comparison. This is this being my first real uh, dip of the toe into the anime world. But I really enjoyed myself. I thought the movie itself was honestly just really lovely. Like I felt really entertained the entire time. So I feel like if this is something – I would highly recommend it to anybody interested in any kind of introduction to anime. So for me, four stars for sure. I'm going to mirror you with the four stars. And I, I thought for a sec that I was being unfair because I do think that it accomplishes everything that it wants to. And I liked it. Uh, I don't think there's some like upper ceiling threshold that I don't give animated movies like high enough ratings, but uh any any time I tried to distinguish the things I didn't like about the movie or that I wanted changed, I realized I was just describing a different movie, like I did with the Change One Thing superlative. Um, I think if there was a series of manga or lore or books of like of lore that goes deeper into this world, which maybe exists, I would read it. I like it. It exists. I'll read it. Like there's there's a lot to this world that I like. But um, it wasn't. It didn't push into the excellent levels yet. But hey, there's plenty more Ghibli to explore. Speaking of exploring, I think it's time. Do you have any movies that I can help us select for next time, Lizzie? 
I do. So this movie, as we just discussed, we all loved unanimously. But this, we said it earlier, there's no comedic relief. So next Hmm. week, we're going to go with slapstick, silly movies. So are you ready to hear our options? Yeah, of course. All right. So option number one is Scary Movie from 2000. A year after disposing of the body of a man they accidentally killed, a group of dumb teenagers are stalked (laughs) by a bumbling serial killer. Option number two, wrongfully accused, 1998. Ryan Harrison is framed for a murder he must prove himself innocent by by finding a mysterious one-eyed, one-armed, one-legged man after escaping from a bus accident on the way to jail. And option number three, UHF. 1989, an unemployed visionary becomes the manager of a local television station. The station becomes a success with all sorts of hilarious sight gags and wacky humor. I'm not picking this because it's an 80s movie. I'm picking this because I think it's been on my list the longest to see. Uh, We need to do UHF next week. All right. Okay. Awesome. Logging it in. That, That was awesome. Thank you for those options. And JD, thanks again for being on the show. Thank you again for having me. It's always a pleasure. And thank you, all the lords, ladies, and knights of the Retro Movie Roundtable. We invite you to reach out to us. We want to hear from you. Subscribe, rate, and review us on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Podcasts, Stitcher, Pandora, or wherever you get your podcasts. Subscribe to our YouTube channel. It's mostly audio only, but Russell has been going back and updating them with slides. They look wonderful. Give us a like on Facebook, Instagram, and follow us on Twitter at movie underscore retro. Email us at retromovieroundtable at yahoo.com. Producing and providing this podcast is fun, but not free. We invite you to support the show at our Patreon page at www.patreon.com slash retromovieroundtable. Any contribution is much appreciated and will go towards making the show better for you, the listeners. As always, thank you for listening. Be good to each other and watch more movies. Lizzie? Lizzie. Funny. You like samurai swords? I like baseball. <laughs>